Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, my darlings. It's me, Anna Man, actress, singer, welder. Gotta have a backup. I've been in everything, my darlings, and I've been cut from most things. However, I will not be cut from one thing, and that is my own podcast, Talking to Actors with Anna Mann, where I meet those rarest of creatures, the actors. That's Talking to Actors on The Great Big Owl. The following podcast is a member of The Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you want to listen to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. Crazy youngsters, and welcome to part two of episode 55 of Chart Music. Here I am again, Al Needham, and by my side are David Stubbs Hello. and Neil Kulkarni. Hello, man. chaps. It's the first time I've, I've brought you together for a play date. That's fucking insane. Isn't yeah, why is it? that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, why have we been kept apart? Well. You're the dads of chart music. <laughs> you just think having two dads, you think we'll just get off, you know, sort yeah, of di- start talking about like sheds and school runs and stuff like that. Yeah, wasps nests and all that shit. Who was that? I, I would start about sheds as well, actually. Yes, I'm be garrulous on that subject. Uh, so. <laughs> it's a strange thing, though. About I mean, we're 55 episodes in. What's been yes. going on? Why have we been I, kept apart? Yeah, extraordinary. Mm. I, don't know. I think this goes right to the top, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, you're together now, and that's yeah, all I, that matters. You, you, Reunited for Christmas. Yeah. And it feels so good. Yes. <laughs> anyway, you know what I'm going to say now. All right, then, pop craze youngsters. It is time to tuck into this episode of Top of the Pops and go all the way back to December of 1982. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget... They've been on top of the pops more than we have. It's 20 to 8 on Thursday, December the 23rd, 1982. And seeing as Christmas Day is falling on a Saturday this year, top of the pops is gearing itself up for a nice bit of overtime. The Christmas Day edition, which will run from 2 to 3, is already in the tin, along with next Thursday's edition, which will be the second part of the review of the year. But the BBC's pop excitement department are still hammering away like little elves, because this episode, as is the style of Top of the Pops in the early 80s, is live and direct if you will. <laughs> Were you ever excited by that? Is a Top of the Pops in his life? 
No, not particularly. Yeah. They were the only people who seemed to be excited about it. Yeah. yeah. And and as a kid, to be honest with you, having, you know, by this time I will have seen completely mimed Top of the Pops, if you like, and completely, mm. you know, edited Top of the Pops. And I will also yeah, see... Were even live the presenters mimed? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I prefer things to be slick. I, yeah. I, yes. I don't like the raw edge, supposedly, mm. that something live provides. Unless you're um, sadist and you want an all-on-about-eve type fiasco to occur, you know, yeah. something like that. As we've discussed before, you know, the uh, BBC decided to, to make Top of the Pops live because the charts had been moved up a couple of days. Uh, so they didn't have so much time as before to react to it. But, you know, you can still get all this in the can by Wednesday, I mm. think. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's a, nothing's going to change in the world of pop in a day to, to <laughs> you know, mean they have to break in and do an emergency broadcast. No. And, and to be honest with you, yeah. I mean, the presenters, it, that even when um, it's slickly edited together, Top of the Pops, it's still the presenters that, in, uh, that add the oddity, if you like, or yes. add the mistakes. And they do that even, you know, mm. without, you know <laughs> without the need for it being live. Last episode, mm. I did a chart music. Yeah, Tony Blackburn was fucking up without any need to be live at all. <laughs> no, totally. So, I mean, there's no, with the people like Simon Bates and Noel Edmonds or whatever, there's no rigorous self-criticism. No, oh my God, that just didn't make any sense, did it? Can we, go, can we do that one again? <laughs> no. Ah, just put it in the pot. So your host tonight is David. David Kid Jensen, who was firmly re-established at the controls of the weekday evening slot, working as the decompression chamber before John Peel. It's the slot he regained in October of 1981 from Paul Burnett after his year-long stint as the presenter of the 10 o'clock news on the Turner Broadcasting System in Atlanta, the forerunner to CNN. He was welcomed back with open arms by the pop-crazed youngsters who have just voted him the third best radio show in the Smash Hits readers' poll, one below the Top 40 show and one above Steve Wright. Kid Jensen at CNN, That's that would have been weird, wouldn't it? It'd be like seeing Dave Lee Travis on Weekend World or something like that. <laughs> no, but it wouldn't, It just does my head in that someone who presents Top of the Pops can go off and do anything else. But that's mm. the thing with Kid Jensen. You do feel he can do anything, you know? Yes. He's so... It is that perhaps it's that Danish Canadian thing, but he can yes. slot in anywhere. I mean, considering before he even started broadcasting sort of pop music, he was doing a show with jazz and classical music in it. Yes, you cannot not conceive of that. Of course, that makes sense. He's just capable, and he's a really safe pair of fans. Out of all of the DJs and presenters that we've looked at across the breadth of chart music, I still get on with Kid Jensen. I still like him on the telly. Mm. Um, I still like his presence. I, I never yes. had a problem with him as a kid. Never felt he was some old fart and shouldn't be on it. Um, and never felt that he was graspingly young and trying to look young either. He just sailed through um, mm. all the time. Always just really a comforting presence, uh, David Jensen. Yeah. Mm. He has that kind of air of like a 1979 sort of trendy um, school teacher as well, you know, with the hair <laughs> and especially what he's wearing tonight, that kind of, it looks like, he's probably the kind of guy that would turn up to a sort of Saturday night disco in a rugby shirt possibly, yeah. but 
he's at the nice end of that spectrum. You know, he's not at the sort of horrible, sort of, you know, getting sway to eating rifles end of that spectrum. He's, um, <laughs> you, know, you know, not necessarily the most delicious turns of phrase or whatever. But um, I do like once, you know, in, in the lead up to this, he had his own show. And I do remember one time he just put some Nick Lowe on and he said something like, I like anyone with a rock and roll heart and Nick Lowe's beats loud and strong. <laughs> and actually, I think that Kid Jensen's heart beats loud and strong, a rock and roll yeah, heart. Yes. Faintly, yeah. perhaps, tonight, you know, in places, but that's not necessarily his fault. But um, No. Um, yeah, yeah. And, it, and and I think he has that essential likability as well. I mean, yes. you know, the others are downright creeps in, in, in most cases. Yeah, if, you, if you're working in an office and Kid Jensen started there, you'd think, oh, I'd mm. like to... I'd like to get to know him. Yeah. I'll, I'll have a word with him at the Hawaiian night at the bowling alley. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, in an alternate universe, Kid Jensen stays at CNN and he ends up reporting from the Gulf War and breaking the news of about nine eleven. <laughs> yes, which would have been insane. Mm. Yeah, but I'm sure he he never seems clunky. That's the mm. thing. It's just yes, you know. Well, as I got through this episode. Uh, I started thinking, no spoilers or anything, but I started thinking it was some sort of punishment for the last episode that I did, which was really good. <laughs> yes. um, but the one likeable thing about this episode throughout um, is Kid. He's the most likeable element of it. And, and you know, yes. when I think about how unbearable the music that we're about to confront would yes. have been if announced by DLT or something. Mm. Uh, it yeah. would have just accentuated the the the, the badness yeah. of the, some of some of the some of the elements of this episode. But with him, yeah. I'm happy. You know, he's he's not been dealt the best of hands, no. but he deals with it gamely. And I mean, obviously, yeah, there's a question mark. Is you know, he's the old school. You know, we're getting into the 80s now. But actually, I think you know, if anything. I mean, you know, some of what's up tonight is is kind of an insult to his sensibilities. Mm. I mean, some of it's an insult to Jimmy Savile's sensibilities. <laughs> to honest, but, uh, so, um, yeah, yeah, we're all right with we're all right with Kid. You know, definitely. If you've been following our coverage of Top of the Pops in 1982, you'll know that it's been a year of profound change and. That continued in December because on the first week of this month, Peter Powell has introduced three new Top of the Pops presenters, all wearing Radio 1 jackets like prospects in a biker gang waiting to get their (laughs) bottom rockers. And those people were Gary Davis, Janice Long and Pat Sharp, which means that a night of the long knives is imminent amongst the presenters of the 70s. Mm. And out of all of them, Kid's one of the few who's going to survive that cull, isn't he? Yeah, he is. And, and and out of that set of new presenters that you just just uh, said, um, I mean, I put Gary Davis and Peter Powell and Pat Sharp together. Yeah. They are all sort of faintly. They don't care about music, and they're using radio, and they're probably using Top of the Pops in a sense to propel their own, own fame. I never really got that from Kid. He seems much more in the Janice Long genuine music fan Definitely. bracket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because. Kids show, you know, had great session bands yeah. on and, and he seemed to care about music genuinely from the off. So, so mm. yeah, that's why he survived yeah. um, through to that, I think. Whereas your, your Edmondses and your DLTs, thankfully, didn't. Mm. I mean, he's 32 at this point and you can, you can see him going right into the late 80s on top of the pops if he'd have stayed at the BBC and not, not taken the ITV and Nescafe shilling. 32? <laughs> he could be my son. Thirty-two, <laughs> and you'd be right proud of him, wouldn't you, David? Yeah, yeah. Him and his little rock and roll heart. <laughs> We're feeling festive, and I hope you are as well. As this town, top of the pops, celebrates and looks at the last chart of 1982, and we kick off with the Maisonettes, and this is Heartache Avenue. <laughs> 
of the downpour of cuddled vinyl ceases and a baubly video effect spins in towards the screen. We are assailed by a silvery backdrop, a silver Christmas tree, the neon top of the Pops logo bedecked with tinsel and Kid in an unseasonable black rugby shirt and jeans flanked by two members of City Farm. There's a lad with a black PVC sleeveless top and a frizzy woman who starts dancing before even any fucking music comes on. (laughs) Kid tells us that Mm. everyone in the studio is feeling festive as fuck and as the camera pans left, taking in an absolute wank snap in a suit made of hazelnut and caramel quality street wrappers, we're thrown into the opening single of the night, Heartache Avenue by the Maisonettes. Formed in Birmingham in 1982, the Masonettes were the creation of Lawrence Mason, who was the son of Edward J. Mason, the creator of the 40s radio series Dick Barton Special Agent and co-creator of The Archers. At the time, Mason was best known as the former lead singer of City Boy, who were reputedly the first band ever to perform live on Top of the Pops in 1976 when the Hapkido Kid failed to chart, but were best known for 5705, which got to number 8 in August of 1978. After City Boy split up earlier this year, Mason immediately put together a new 60s-inspired band, was picked up by the independent label Ready Steady Go, tacked on two local models, Denise Warden and Lane Williams, to mime over the session singers on the record, and this is their debut single. It came out at the beginning of the month, it's rocketing up the independent charts, and this week it's jumped up four places from number 43 to number 39, giving them a shot on the pops. Already we're festooned with not only tinsel, but zoo wankers. Oh, yeah. Your favourites, Neil? (laughs) I think this episode features more zoo wankerage per pixel, if you like, mm. yes. um, than any other episode I've ever seen. And, and it's, They're uh, fucking it's, everywhere. How many of them are there? I know, it's relentless. We're sloshing ankle deep in it by the end, aren't we? And, and, yeah. and, and it's one of those... I mean, I found myself throughout this episode, to be honest with you, trying to, in a sense, look at the musicians or look at, look at, look at the performers, but constantly distracted in the peripheries by somebody doing something cuntish that yes. um, demanded the attention. And, and it starts now on this first song, and it does yes. not stop. It just no. does not stop. It's, it's, yeah, it's a billion percent zoo wankerage all the way. Mm-hmm. I mean, just as a general observation you know, throughout the show, it's, it's weird. I mean, it's almost like there's this vibe, partly, you know, that they're kind of celebrating because all that kind of weird heavy manners, punk stuff, like all of that whole scene is completely petered out and we're mm. free to party again yeah. uh, with maximum inanity. But in a sense, in a funny kind of way, a lot of what's happening, a lot of the way that people are dressing, behaving, it does, oddly enough, derive from the same sort of radical source as punk, in a sense, because... You know, it's you know you see people dressing in the kind of Vivian Westwood type kind of gear and stuff like that. You know that is strongly mm. feeding into the look of that a lot of people are wearing tonight. And the whole new romantic thing. This is almost like a kind of very very sort of you know dilute new romanticism. You know, basically about the way that they're kind of approaching dressing and things like that. You know, shaking new romanticism. Yeah. Um, you know, but but it's it's completely devoid of the sort of radical intention of new new romanticism. You know, this idea mm. of like being becoming whatever you want to be 
become, especially in a sort of post-industrial world where, you know, you're not defined by work and your job anymore. It's just dealy boppers and sort of coloured rim specs and sort of, you know, <laughs> absolute banality and just, you know, and just no thought, just throwing things together randomly, you know, without any sort of sense of context or whatever. I mean, that twat in the white shorts, what's that about? <laughs> oh, God, yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's the thing with Zoo. Unlike previous dance troops, they seem to have scorn for pop music, I think. Yes. Mm. And, mm. and, you know, it, sort of, it, I don't know what other dance troupe would consider it a smart idea when they're going on a pop show, which is obviously loved by young pop fans, to dress yes. up in a sense like shit parodies of pop yes. stars. There's an adamant guy, there's a guy randomly wearing tennis gear. And as Oh yes. And as ever yeah. with Zoo, I, I just I just often think, never mind sort of even putting them at the front or even at the back, just get them out in the car park, please, with a cattle yes. and let them shiver their bollocks off while we get to see actual people. Zoo, yeah. throughout this episode, addressed like a children's entertainer's parody of a pop star. Yes. Um, or a pop fan. <laughs> I, I just hate them yes. so, so fucking much. You're right. Yeah. I think that to be a pop fan, you've got to have some sense of sort of discernment and differentiation or whatever. Uh-huh. And they just approach everything in this completely ridiculous kind of, you know, everything's brilliant. Man, everything's great. Everything's yeah, great. Yeah. It is. And we just dance but to it. You know, like, this man, is it. it. Almost before we can even hear the Masonettes, I'm distracted by this particular blue suited, utter wank snap, pulling yes. the kind of expressions. Um, you now see on car adverts where models are paid to look like they're singing along to a song. And, yes. and as a child, he would have annoyed me. And that annoyance would have, in a sense, become toothsome. I would have kind of had this habit of focusing mm. totally on that annoyance to get more annoyed and stoke up my own anger. Because yes. he's in the <laughs> peripheries throughout it. And just the yeah. hateful expressions are just, yeah, yeah just... Mm. just you know, all there. Only Top of the Pops would do this. I mean, th- thank fuck it wasn't, they didn't spin this out throughout the whole BBC. <laughs> Top of the Pops is saying here that the kids are actually interested in what's going up on stage. They don't look good enough. Yeah. They don't pass muster for Top of the Pops. So we've got to get these cheerleaders in, supposedly to whip up some excitement. But the, the excitement's already there. Yeah. Mm. You know, I mean, yeah. and they wouldn't do this on anything else. Whoever does match of the day isn't going to go, oh, join the half-time bit where they scan over the uh, the crowd trying to pick out kids eating pies. They're not going to go, oh, that kid, he, he's not eating his pie with enough enthusiasm for the show. Let's get some people in. Yeah. The yeah. nine o'clock news doesn't get models in to stand in a doll queue and yeah. look depressed. It is absurd. You know? It yeah. is absurd. You know, uh, I mean, in football terms, there is. I mean, it's a possible equivalent with things like the Gunnosaurus and those kind of mascots or whatever. And I mean, maybe there's. A yeah, sort of... oh, my, I won't have a word said against Gunnosaurus. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm obviously. <laughs> meaning, but, it's the only good thing about <laughs> Arsenal, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but you know, I suppose that kind of manufactured sense of enthusiasm. Yeah, exactly. Why didn't they just do that? Why didn't they have mm. them in mascot outfits? Mm. Well, it would cover up mm. their expressions those horrible expressions the expressions basically people who hate music or have a little interest in music Zoo's expressions throughout this episode are really kind of what they imagine what the enjoyment of music must look like Mm. and the enjoyment of music does not look like that 
Um, yeah. No, I don't know where they're coming from. They're dancers, for God's sake. They should like music, surely. Exactly. They're in that permanent upper register of sort of, yeah, of banality. And, and I mean, in a sense, you know, again, going back to the whole new romantic thing, one of the things that was key to that was a certain sense of froideur, was a certain moodiness. And, of course, that is completely absent from the zoo yeah. wankers or whatever. Yeah. So with all the kind of coming from a similar route, that is what they've kind of eliminated. And that is something that's really important. You know, that, that just sense of this means something, you know, the element of discernment. You know, yeah. we're not just sort of... A, bunch of idiotic fops here you know we're doing this for a reason yes and you know an understanding you know what pop can be and what it's about yeah and yeah i would have you know i mean i, I was a pretty alienated chap in 1982 and, and i tell you watching this for 10 or 15 minutes who'd only have like ratcheted up the old alienation <laughs> knob as it were at this time you know the tubes just started mm, and i've been yeah. i've been looking at one or two episodes of the tube and there's a lot of things that got wrong but one of the things that got right was they, they'd focus on the crowd. You know, like yeah. Top of the Pops, they'd have balconies and stuff like that. Mm. But instead of padding it out with wank snaps like Zoo, they've got actual people who are enjoying the music and have decided what they're going to wear yeah. to, you know, yeah, yeah. to attend this TV show. They know the music, yeah. And it's fascinating. It's a mm. fascinating social document. Mm. I mean, what Zoo are doing here, they're the equivalent of the fans that turn up in football team car parks on transfer <laughs> deadline day <laughs> and kind of like ram dildos into people's ears or pretend to bomb each other <laughs> up against some gates, mm. but in a really bad way. Mm. Your eyes are going off the bands and you're just looking for people to despise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was doing that throughout this episode and I feel it is because of this new sort of yellow hurl era, as you say. Um, mm. Zoo are foregrounded in this episode to a greater extent than I've seen in any other episode. Um, yes. I kind of wish you'd you'd forewarned me of this, Al, because fuck me, my blood pressure. <laughs> this is why I picked this one yeah, for you. <laughs> I was literally frothing at the gob. It was. It was it, I was watching it, just getting <laughs> furious and and getting furious as I would have done as a ten year old. Nobody liked Zoo. Nobody. No. Um, I, I was getting yeah. furious as I was as a 21-year-old, you know, and still <laughs> taking everything pretty earnestly and stuff like that. And I'd probably laugh at my 21-year-old self and like how he took all this kind of thing to heart. You know, come on, David, it's just pop music, just people dancing around, having fun. What's up with that? But no, I apologise formally to my 21-year-old self because he was quite right. Yeah. This yeah, stuff yeah. should make your blood boil. You know, and shouting, you know, bloody fascist Thatcher scum <laughs> is not inappropriate. <laughs> mm-hmm. That notion that it's just pop music is always exactly. fatal yeah. for pop. And, exactly. and it's yes. exactly what Zoo think. Mm, mm, yes. Mm. And that's what they yeah, that's their attempt at a get out in court. Mm-hmm. But no. <laughs> Unacceptable. I was only obeying orders from Flick Cop. Yeah, when they have the Nuremberg trials <laughs> of these people, yeah. That will not be a cop out. And it's a shame because this I I mean, this is a really good song and I quite like it. Yes. Let's talk about the song, shall we? You know. Um, it is very 60s sounding. Yes. If you didn't have a colour telly or if you turned the colour off, they do look kind of authentically 60s, if you like. Um, yes. And it gets the vibe right. The sound of the yes. thing gets the vibe right. It's somewhere between kind of Boy from New York City and, and really saying something in a way. It's a, mm. a genuine 60s kind of reverb to the sound of it. Yeah. And I was, 
I, I remembered this song, but I yes. hadn't heard it genuinely like decades, I don't think. But it's a corker. It's a corker of a one-hit wonder. It is. It's a, it's, it shows off to a flyer, isn't it? It is. But, like I say, wanted to enjoy the song, Zoo fucking it up. Mm. I mean, the mod revival is, is long dead by now. But 60s pastiches were a definite thing in 1982. I mean, Murray Wilson has hoved interview this year. Mm-hmm. Tracy Allman's about to kick off. But um, Phil Collins is currently at number six with his cover of You Can't Hurry Love. And now there's this. Mm. I can technically agree with you that, um, you know, this is a decent song from an objective point of view. But this would really raise my hackles at Mm. the time. This this whole Motown thing is not because I hate Motown, far from it. Mm. But there was a lot of this, as you say, and it was Human League, Mirror Man, you know. Um, and as you say, Mary Wilson, who I thought was just about acceptable. But there was just so much of it. And I think I disliked it because, first of all, a lot of it is that kind of simple, you know, Motown beat is for like Carlton, how a fresh Prince of Bel-Air to dance to, you know. But yeah, there was that that annoyed me because, you know, I was a bit of a soul boy, I was a bit of a dancer in those days and I was very much into the kind of modern end of things. You know, your D-trains, your Bambatas, your trouble funk. And I just felt that, again, you know, it's that kind of sort of delayed white reaction to, you know, to black music or whatever. Oh, we can get the 60s, we can just about, you know, we can do the 60s now. Mm. Um, And because they weren't really Mm. quite ready for what was actually being pumped out of New York or whatever at the time. Um, Simon will probably have a go at me. (laughs) Again, never mind. It's my turn on the mic this time, you know. That's like they're listening sometimes, you know, as a general thing. You know, I occasionally get the feeling that, you know, one or two chaps involved think that I don't actually listen to these things, you know. (laughs) You know, that I'm just this old geezer, you know, just only interested in his own sort of, no, no, I listen, I listen and I take notes i have a little book it's all registered don't worry bear that in mind next time there's a band coming up soon you can uh, you can take your frustrations out on simon with yes well yes i mean neil tennant was very taken by this in the smash it single page uh, he said the, the 60s aren't going to go away you know but at least this trip back 20 years is taken with wit and imagination and Lowell Mason can sing like a heartthrob, even though he doesn't look like one on the cover. Yeah, I mean, another further thing that raises my already raised hackles um, is that bloody beard. I mean, come on. It's <laughs> the beard has no place in this decade. And I mean, it doesn't no. just apply to him. There are a lot of beards in this episode. Yeah, there are, yes. yeah. And this, yeah, this applies across the board, actually. But no, I mean, it has no place to any point in history at all actually (laughs) disgusting oh you you sort of gave us a list of of, you know the stuff that was coming out that year that was looking back to the 60s out of that i would Mm. pluck like you can't hurry love by phil collins which i found i found that objectionable at the time i think and i think what Mm. i detected in that is perhaps what's going on here but i kind of excuse it because i like the song is there is that sense in 82 i guess that they're trying to in a sense reject the last couple of years and, and go back mm. to something deeper, you know, yeah. and more soulful and more honest and all the rest of it. Yeah, but uh, Phil Collins rejecting what happened over the past couple of years, mainly the stuff that he made, surely that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you no, know what? You know, I, I'd they're... take Coming in the Air tonight over Can't Hurry Love, I have to say. And I think Neil's right there. And I think this is something that, happen- you know, and it culminates in the excruciating of 1987 and wet, wet, wet. Mm. You know, this very sort of, you know, very sort of white orientated idea of soul 
authenticity um, achieved by osmosis or imitation mm. or just simply practically replication or whatever mm. at times. The thing is with this Maze and that song, the reason it works for me is that cosmetically the, the sound is right. It's, it's not mm. just the 60s yes. song retooled in the 80s. It yeah. sounds 60s-ish. But beyond that, the band yes. themselves, they, I mean, beards notwithstanding, um, they look like they could, the backing, the two girls doing the backing singing, and the drummer, and the bass player, and the lead singer, they look like they, yeah, they could have been airlifted in from the 60s. It's, it's not necessarily a sort of exercise in time travel, but it's, it, I don't know, it's a little bit more convincing than uh, Phil Collins in a shit grey flecked suit singing an old Motown yeah. song, yeah. Studiously monochrome as well, aren't they, in the costumes amid all the pink balloons? Very much so. They're essentially done out like the Dave Clark Five, aren't they? Yeah. They've got white suits and they've got black polo necks. Yeah, yeah they are studiously monochrome in contrast with the pink balloons and the zoo wank, etc., etc. I could have done a, one or two stern looks of um, reproach, I think, you know, would have topped it yeah, off. Yeah, but there but, is, uh, there is yeah. one genuinely confusing moment Thoroughly confusing moment. Um, I don't know. You probably did notice it, but um, when he sings, there's a, there's a change in the song where it goes to a, a bit that where he starts singing "Leave Me Alone." Yes, and he shoves one finger in his yes. pocket. What is all that about? He I've shoves got no deliberately idea. towards the camera. He shoves one finger in his pocket like he's tucking something down there. Maybe he's going to Tesco afterwards, <laughs> and he wants to make sure that he's got that coin thing that you can get the uh, trolley chain off with. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, but no. This was before trolleys needed coins. Which which finger is it? Which finger is it? Yeah, it could be in a ring finger. I mean, is he? Is it the middle finger? I mean, is he giving the sort? Of... No, but it's his forefinger. Oh, it's his forefinger. Okay, it's his... otherwise, oh, right. yeah, it's his forefinger, and it's. I don't know, was it a drugs reference, a rubber Johnny reference? I don't know what it was. Mm. Maybe he was thinking, oh shit, I've, I've got my wedding ring on and I'm singing a song about being a, a loner in a house, or, you know, that I got because I'm alone. Maybe. No, no, when I say forefinger, am I getting that wrong? I mean, you know, your second finger, the one next to your thumb. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, index finger. Index finger, mm. yeah, yeah. That's what he yeah. shoves down there. What's all that about? If he was tucking a packet of cigarettes into his, um, you know, the sleeve of his T-shirt, that'd be another thing, but he wasn't. It's very, very strange, that moment. Yeah, and the song, it's uh, interesting approach to housing by the uh, Conservative <laughs> government there. Oh, you've been dumped, you can have an house. <laughs> I mean, we've already gone on about them, but we're, we're going to go back to them time and time again to get used to it, Pop Creations. I mean, the standard yellow hurl hierarchy is in place for this performance, isn't it? The kids are a shadowy mass in cheapo party hats in the foreground. The band's in the middle, and the zoo wankers are towering above them upstage, being, as always, unable to dance to a song that Flick Colby hasn't told them to do anything to. Mm-hmm. It's that lad in yeah. the white vest and the shorts and the socks, mm. isn't he, that just cannot fucking dance to anything. He no. looks like, you know, if you're playing Grand Theft Auto and you're running around and you've got a bit of jam or whatever on your joypad and it's stuck... Mm. And he just ends up running into a wall. That's exactly how he dances. Mm. They're, they're, not, they're not fit for purpose. They can't dance. No. Mm. Play a record mm. at Legs & Co. Play a record at Pan's People. They'll dance. Mm. They won't need to do yeah. something routine and stage schooly. They'll just get on with it. They'll just get down to it. Zoo cannot yeah. do that. No. They have to put their legs too far apart. They have to do something stupid with each other. They cannot just mm. dance rhythmically to a record. They're fucking inept. They're not fit for purpose, and yet they're everywhere. They're everywhere. Yeah. Across the balcony, across where the kids should be sort of in front of the band as well, on both sides of the stage. I was, you know, the moments when you do see people of 1982 in this episode, a blessed relief 
because the, it's mm. really rare that you get to see normal people. Yeah. It's these cunts. It's a cavalcade of cunts. It is a cavalcade of yeah. cunts. <laughs> a cuntalcade. It, yes, yes. A, a cunterama. Yes, yes, yes. A cuntitude of uh, cunts. But... Ready, steady, cunt. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the worst thing, isn't it? They go from, like, you know, the 70s or whatever, when you've got these kind of very weird, sort of nervous, unenthusiastic, mousy audiences, <laughs> and then they just leap directly to these kind of ludicrously, zanely, over-enthusiastic, you know, um, nonsense... Um, you know, the, get people in who are kids who actually know and like pop music. Um, yeah, when you yes. talk about the tube, Revolver was really good at that as well. You know, yes. Not, not yeah. hard to do. People of that age are interesting mm. when they're just being themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I look at Zoo and I think they are the, the, the precursor of the uh, Instagram generation. Mm. They have there, a brassy so. confidence, yeah, that the, the, yeah. the, the, the other kids don't. Yeah, you're yeah I mean, right. they're at the pathologically attention-seeking end of, uh, yeah, of youth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, it's, it's not Michael Hill's job to provide us, 30-odd years later, with social documentation of that era. But no. it, it would have made for a better show. This is yes. the thing. It would have made for a better show. It's always better seeing British people dance rather yes. than, you know, some dance troupe dance. Um, yes. You know, especially so many of them. At the end of yeah. this show, at the very end of this show, there are, you know, Zoo are listed in the credits and they get named. There's only about seven or eight names. That's bullshit. There's about 40 of them. Mm. What would it have been like in that last episode from 1978, Neil, if... if- Zoo had been involved there. <laughs> Zoo trying to dance to Ian Jury. I mean, it, it, it... Oh, God. I don't really want to think about it. All dressed up <clears> as um, Zoo punks. Well, yeah. Fuck. Or playing crap too wide air guitar to Thin Lizzy. It would have been appalling. Yes. It would have been appalling. <laughs> and in 1982, yeah. right, the only place in which these arseholes could have got away with this is on the, you know, studio floor at Top of the Pops. Any club, any disco, anywhere yeah. in the country yeah. at the time, it would have been fucking hell. Oh, they've got clock the, these twats. Get the tools. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. The fucking ashtrays would have been brandished. Mm. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, brilliant song. It's sixties as fuck, but unlike Phil Collins and You Can't Hurry Love, it's not a Xerox copy. Mm. Mm. The fact that this for me is like perhaps the highlight. Uh <laughs> Illustrates yeah. the grim pickings ahead. Yeah. I think. <laughs> no, I think I, I, I believe there is better. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, I, I can objectively agree with you about you know what you're saying about the song, but also he's got he's he's got form for um, five seven oh five, which is uh, mm. that was just horrible. I mean, that was the moment where I just thought. You know, punk is just dying at this moment. I didn't. Re- it was that little hiatus between punk and post-punk when things like City Boy and Five Seven O Five appear. You know, a slightly sort of tapered version of a sort of old-fashioned blandness. And um, um, so, yeah, so I resent a bit for that as well. It's the difference between where we were at this time, Al. Uh, uh, mm. You know, David was a principled thinker about pop music at this yeah. time. I was yeah. a ten-year-old kid. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. Yeah. 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 By this point, I was one of the last few mods in the school mm. and uh, a year or so later I would be the last one so at the time I, I approved of this yeah. and was looking forward to more from them mm. and-, and I fancied the, the smaller backings <laughs> <laughs> so the following week Heartache Avenue stayed at number 39 but that's not surprising as the charts were trapped in the amber of Christmas week as is its wont when the shops opened again, it leapt 10 places to number 29, and two weeks later, it would begin a two-week run at number seven. It would also get to number one in the independent chart and got to number 12 in Canada. 
The follow-up, Where I Stand, failed to chart, however, and after replacing the models with two actual singers, one of whom being Carla Mendonca, who appeared in every BBC alternative comedy TV show of the 80s and 90s, and was the mum on the ITV kids' show My Parents Are Aliens, and releasing five more flop singles, they split up in 1984. Mason went on to write LP tracks for Samantha Fox and then turned to script writing, becoming a regular contributor to the Radio 4 show Weekending (laughs) and the drama series Richard Barton, General Practitioner, and sadly he passed away last year. Oh, oh, I feel bad. I'm sorry about all that stuff about the beard now. (laughs) Uh, Well, it still still stands technically, but you know, obviously. But yeah, indie number one this is. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to get a Another indie number one pretty soon, aren't we? Ooh. Oh, are we? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Spoiler alert, Pop Crazy Young says it's, it's not going to be Joy Division. Yeah, it's not going to be Joseph <laughs> K, is it? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to All Rather Mysterious, the podcast that aims to unlock the mysteries of the past with the key of fact. My name is John Rain. My name is Eleanor Morton. My name is David Reed. Please join us as we present to you mysteries that have baffled the world. You had any noises? What about um, a door creaking? Uh, you, don't, uh, you don't have to do that. That weird kadook that yeah, lights well. going off makes for some reason in films. <laughs> All rather mysterious. From Birmingham, the base of this, making their top of the top pops debut at Heartache Avenue. And now from an American television special of a few years ago, it's David Bowie with Bing Crosby. Kid, surrounded by more members of City Farm, whips us immediately into Peace on Earth, Little Drummer Boy by David Bower and Bing Crosby. 
We've already covered David Jones and Harry Crosby Jr. on chart music, and this single was recorded on the set of the TV special Bing Crosby's Merry Old Christmas, with lots of E's on the end, at the ATV Studios in Elstree on September the 11th, 1977. A special which also featured Ron Mooder, Twigger, and Stanley Baxter. <laughs> it's a partial cover of the song Carol of the Drums, which was an interpretation of a Czech folk song and written by the American composer Catherine Kennicott Davis in 1941 and then left in a drawer for a decade before it was recorded for the first time as an a cappella song by the actual Trap family singers in 1951. In 1957, a full version was arranged by the American composer Jack Halloran, but not released. So it was offered by 20th Century Fox Records to another composer, Harry Simeone, who knocked together the version we know today. He also changed the title to Little Drummer Boy and had an American hit with it for four years in a row. When Simeone's version was put out over here in February of 1959, it sparked not one, but two cover versions, with all three of them in the then top 30. The original getting to number 13 for two weeks, a version by Michael Flanders getting to number 20, and the Beverly Sisters having the biggest hit out of all of them when it got to number 5. It was also covered on the Jackson 5 Christmas album in 1970 and was covered as a follow-up to Amazing Grace by the Pipes and Drums and the Military Band of the Royal Scots Dragoon Guard getting to number 13 in December of 1972. This is Bowie's follow-up, of sorts, to Cat People putting out fire, which got to number 26 in April of this year. It entered the charts at number 73 at the end of the month, then soared 34 places to number 39, and then stealthily rump-a-pump-pumped its way up the chart, <laughs> leaping seven places this week from number 10 to number 3. Oh, so much to discuss here, chaps. <laughs> First question, obviously. Why is a musical innovator getting involved with a cross-dressing artist who has limited appeal in America. Mm. Well, you know, let, let's keep Bing and Stanley Baxter out of this for the moment <laughs> and concentrate on Bowie instead. People go on about this nowadays as if it's some mind-blowing event. But, you know, this sort of TV special thing was still going on in 1977, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's still going on now. You know, Mariah yes. Carey's got one this year. Michael Bublé's got one this year, I'm sure, where a, a host of odd guests turn up. You know, it's it is tradition. It's a tradition that I always avoid these shows. But yeah, they've always yes. been with us. Mm. Yeah, mm. you know, these wonderfully sort of lotriamont surrealist kind of throwing together of like yeah, <laughs> Twiggy, Sandy, Sandy Baxter, yeah, Bowie, and Bing Crosby. Yeah, it's it's great. Yeah. I think at this stage, I mean, I think Bowie does talk about wanting to. He'd already done around this well, or slightly later. He did this. He did. Um, he narrated Peter and the Wolf. I think a few months yes. after he did this. So you know, and I guess this. I don't know. He's gone from his sort of Berlin period to his Irving Berlin period. You might say. <laughs> yeah, very good. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I'm sorry. I'm just empty, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, and I think he was talking about trying to sort of normalise his career in some way. Whether it was. Yeah. You no, know, he did Peter and the Wolf for Duncan, his son, who was you know a little kiddie at the time, and um, yeah, so maybe I don't know. He was just. You know, he just wanted to kind of sort of, I don't know, straighten out a little bit for a while by doing things like this. This is 1977 and he's got Mm. product to shift because Heroes, Mm. the LP Mm. and the single, is being released the following month. I'm guessing that he knows that with punk, 
in the Ascendancy, in the UK at least. He's not obliged to be seen as the the weird one anymore. Mm. Presumably Johnny Rotten turned Bing Crosby down, so they, <laughs> they got Bowie in instead. <laughs> but hence the really surreal bit when it cuts to, a, you know, the hero's video. Yes. Um, in the midst of this Christmas special. I mean, yes. there's lots of surreal bits in this Christmas special. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of minded to believe what the producers of the show say, that David Bowie only did the show because his mum loved Bing Crosby. Yeah. And also, you know, I mean, he hates this song. David Bowie yes. tells the producers he hates this song, which yeah. necessitates the rewrite and a slight counter melody for it. Mm. But in a weird way, oddly, for me, it makes more sense in 82 Yes. Than it would have done in 77. Yeah. Bowie fans will swear down, of course, that it's the 70s run that's important, if you like. Mm. But like it or not, it's definitely Scary Monsters that put, puts Bowie in the waiting area for sort of genuine international superstardom. Yes. And it's less dance the following year from this year that puts him there. Yeah. So where I think in 77, Bowie and his fans might have, I don't know, enjoyed the slight perversity of him in a sense, mm. turning up on a show with Twiggy and Stanley Baxter and Ron Moody. Yeah. By 82... It sort of feels more like him, I don't know, taking his place amongst the legends, if you like. Yes. Um, it makes more sense in 82 than 77. As an artifact from 77, it's an you know unimpeachably and undimmably strange thing. Mm. A weird thing, this thing. But I do recall enjoying the song and getting a... a, a, a I mean, look, I was young and stupid, okay? But I was getting a... <laughs> getting a genuine sense of religious awe from it. Well, as mm. much awe as a 10-year-old would get um, yeah. from this. By the time you're 10, unless you're at a Catholic school, God has pretty much stopped scaring you and he just becomes another pop cultural figure. You know, you judge God by the songs and the films and the stories. So my children's Bible was much thumbed and hammered, but really for the fantastical elements, for the manna from heaven, for Saul getting caught, his hair caught in a tree and Salome bringing the head of John (laughs) the Baptist out on a party platter. Um, Give me enough brandy now. And this will be a Christmas song I love, but I do need that brandy to get across the stilted oddness of it, which which, to be honest with you, Bing Crosby always had with all his co-stars. I mean, especially his own family, you know, it's weird Bing Crosby because so much success Frozen food pioneer, tape pioneer, microphone pioneer, and yet there's something remorselessly unlovable about him. Mm. Something patrician and cold about him, you know, and I'm not even one of his kids. There's just always been something about Bing Crosby that's cold and unreachable Mm. and unlikable, Mm. I think. Yeah. I think there's a kind of a weird link there. I mean, it's funny the sort of dynamic, the way that they're kind of looking at each other, and it's almost this weird thing of like the father I might have had, you know, the son that I <laughs> yeah. might have had, as it were, yeah. culturally, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, just as well for Bowie, no, he wasn't actually Bing Crosby's son, you know, because um, <laughs> as we know, I mean, he treated them absolutely appallingly, like one of his kids who he called his fat ass kid, and he put him on, you know, he put him on the scales each week, and if he was an ounce or so overweight, he'd thrash him in his study with um you know, some sort of metal-studded belt. Um, oh, you know, obviously completely psychologically, physically abusive human being. Um, you know, and what you learn about, you know, he had the hor- links to the mafia and stuff, was constantly in the hock to them, and um, and everything about him. I mean, whereas Sinatra, in various ways, in terms of his sort of legend persona, projects some of the kind of menace that he had about him, he was probably in some respects a kind of more decent and um, mm. redeemable man, you know, in terms mm. of his stuff on racism, etc., etc. Uh, yeah, and Bing Crosby, who I don't think ever played a villain, 
Um, no. I can't ever remember Bing Crosby ever in a villain. You know, so his life was completely inauthentic. It was complete fiction. It was a complete inversion of the person he actually was. But in a funny kind of way, inauthenticity is key to, like, the technical developments that he was kind of went along yeah, with and yeah. sort of helped out with. You know, for instance, like, recording. He wanted to pre-record his radio shows. And it's funny, yeah. just ties in what we were talking about earlier on, about you know, live versus can top of the pots. And, you know, the, the networks and the sponsors, they were just completely opposed because they said that the public wouldn't want canned radio, you know, and the, 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 the magic, as far as listeners are concerned, was this idea that it was all going out live, you know. But no, so he's you know, he's into the sort of inauthentic aspect of technology. Mm. Um, and also, you know, that, that style, you know, the crooning style that he gets, you know, he understands that, you know, you don't have to be like Al Jolson hollering from the back of the hall that you can kind of caress, yeah. you, you know, you can create a sense of intimacy by using the technology of the microphone. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the very fact that he wants to kind of pre-record, so he invested a lot in like, magnetic tape, and that's at the heart of the whole kind of music concrete revolution, which has massive, massive influence on, you know, all music, not just avant-garde music from the sort of 1950s onwards. He was also into, into video and stuff like that. But it's strange. There is this weird link of inauthenticity that goes in between him. You know, the fact that his persona was completely at odds with the actual human being that he was, mm. and the fact that, you know, he was... Um, you know, he didn't sort of place his great store in being kind of organic and authentic and live, etc., etc. Yeah, mm. yeah. The further we get away, you see, from his golden era, from say, I don't know, post World War Two era, where people are looking for that kind of return to, I don't know, this patrician elderly figures who know what's going mm. on. The further we get away from that, the the less likable he becomes. And yeah, he can eliminate dead air on his shows, and he can bring canned laughter into his radio shows, and all this. Yeah, like David said, inauthentic stuff. But what he can't confect is likability. And mm. and when you know, even when I watch, I watched Holiday in the other day. And he's just remorselessly not likable throughout it. I don't know why. He's not given a nasty character or anything. Mm. But, you know, it's not even... You don't even have to read all the horrible stories about what Bing did to his kids. And, you know, the fact that he just couldn't hug them and he just couldn't express affection and, and all of these things, which is why so many of them ended up raging alcoholics, a couple of them committed suicide as well. But, mm. you know, what he cannot do with all his technological expertise is is make himself likable because... because mm. uh, the heart of Bing Crosby, there's just something flinty and cold. Um, And that comes across in this this performance as well. Yes, it does, doesn't it? You know, David Bowie, conversely, always to me, no matter how much he was inflating himself, self-aggrandizing himself, or, you know, what makeup he was wearing or outfits, there was at heart a warm individual, no matter what he was doing. And that even comes across here, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, deep in his cocaine years as he is in in this performance. But... Bing can't do it. Bing can't do war. Yeah, there's very little eye contact, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right, yeah. And, and yet you can't get around the fact that he was massively, massively popular. My non and grandpa would have watched this TV special in 1977. And it was probably the only time they'd ever seen David Bowie. But that's what is startling about it being 77, mm. you know? Because it's Bowie and it's America. It's mm. an, I mean, it's American, presumably a show going out in America. Yeah, made in Britain by ATV. Made in Britain, yeah. But with an eye on uh, the American audience. I'm just presuming most Americans watching this would have just thought, who the fuck's this weird-looking guy? Yeah, which is why he's doing it. You know, He's trying to not so much break America, but, you know, establish himself a bit more. Yeah, I mean, he's appearing on big American TV shows, isn't he? I mean, from, from young Americans onwards, really, from that period onwards... Mm. 
he is completely willing to appear on anything American to boost his yeah, yeah. to boost his profile over there. But I just wonder whether it would have, amongst the audience it would have just been thoroughly confusing. And then he gets what four or five minutes of the heroes video as well. Mm. On the show. Very, very strange indeed. Yeah, mm. it's a bizarre setup as well, isn't it? Because apparently the whole premise of the of the Christmas special is that Bing Crosby and his family's gone over to see his relatives in, in the old mm. world. And um, <laughs> David Bowie lives nearby and um, the squire of the mansion allows him to come in and use the piano every now and again. It's like, but how much money have you spent on cocaine and peppers, David? <laughs> <laughs> and they have this really awkward chat. Bowie thinks that Bing Crosby's the new buckler, <laughs> which does go down too well. And um, they end up talking about the spirit of Christmas and kids. They talk about kids, don't they? The, mm. the standard fallback conversation piece. Oh, aren't kids great? <laughs> and Bowie says that this is his kid's favourite Christmas mm. song. Mm. I think Slade probably uh, had a bit more of a say in his life at this time. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> But just going back to what was about Bing Crosby, the fact that he was massive, massive popular, it doesn't negate at all what Neil says about him, that sense of flinty coldness, which I entirely agree with. But the fact that he was able to kind of weave, confect this massive success just at that kind of screen-deep level of, yeah. like, superficiality and and get you know garner such mass appeal on the basis of that, I find quite odd. I wonder if it'd sort of come through in the 70s, 80s, 90s, whether that cold flintness would have actually genuinely stood against him, whether we do demand more sort of authentic warmth now from sort of megastars or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. He stayed as a star for a long time because of his longevity, mm. if you like. You know, mm. in a mm. sense, I guess the American audience that absolutely went for Crosby in a big way, and the British audience as well, What they'd seen him go through, yeah, pre-World War II, through World War II, post-World War II, through the 50s, through the 60s. So... You know, anyone, in a sense, who is a survivor in that regard is going to get clung to and is going to get yeah. that appeal just by dint of their statuativeness. And, and, yeah, and he's the voice mm. of Christmas as well to a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man, if that's the voice of your Christmas, I don't want to spend Christmas with you. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've not seen this mentioned anywhere, so this is, this is going off the top of my head. But as, as we all know, Bowie walked in with Angie in fur coats, with a bit of eyeliner on and lipstick and said, point blank, I'm not doing this song. Mm. And if this is the only song I can do, then I'm not doing it. Hence the musical directors going off, knocking out a counterpoint melody in, in an hour or so. Mm. And yeah, I've not, I've not seen it mentioned anywhere, but do you think Bowie was knocking back Little Drummer Boy because of the connection to Ian Brader? <laughs> you know, it, it was on that tape that was played in court only nine years previous. Mm. You know, every time Little Drummer Boy came on, my parents and grandparents would purse their lips. Really? I've read stories of northern Jack Regan types who worked on the case, you know, hearing that song on a pub jukebox and just putting down their pints and walking out. You know, it was a tainted song in Britain for years, and Bowie would have known that. Wow. I really didn't know that, Al. I never knew that history, and I wonder if... Yeah, I didn't know that. I mean, obviously, Prince Buster tried to heal the wound in 1969 <laughs> with Wrecker Pom Pom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what a shame mm. Bowie and Bing Crosby didn't sing that. <laughs> 
And, and mm. yeah, it would have mm. been much more interesting. In fact, mm. it would have been even more interesting if they'd have done a cover of um, Wreck a Buddy by the Soul Sisters. Uh, yes. Filthy, filthy late 60s uh, reggae song. Only if he's ugly, I don't mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He has a dick and I want to grind. That's the fella. Um, yeah, that would have been fascinating. But Bowie knew everything, didn't he? I suspect he did know about that. Mm. But I, I, I do... Ow, I doubt it was that. I just don't think he liked mm. that song. It, 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 no. You know, if you were offered that song, come on, what can you do with that? Yeah. You can't do a lot. It's not really going to showcase you, is it? It's a slow, no. doleful number with a very quite simple melody. But but it's a fucking mad song anyway. <laughs> the lyrics are mental. Oh, someone we <laughs> don't know has just had a baby. So, you know, let's go and bang a drum at it. <laughs> That'll go down well. Exactly. But anyway, that's Bowie in 1977. <laughs> let's talk about Bowie in 1982 because it's been, it's been a quiet year for him on the recording front, hasn't it? I mean... He's only really put out soundtrack stuff. I mean, there, there was mm. Ball mm. on the BBC version of the break play. And then the previous song was the theme to Cat People. And, you know, here he is doing other people's songs. It appears that mm. RCA is just emptying out the tin of whatever material they've got. Because they've put out changes to Bowie this year. Right. So as a pop-crazed youngster not knowing mm. any of this backstory, just looks like Bowie's in his waning years. Mm. Little do we know that he's already having a chit-chat with Nile Rogers and yeah. getting ready to make the biggest selling LP of his career. That is not on the horizon at this point, is it? And that's kind of his last hurrah as well, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the last sort of you know, time that he has the kind of old zeitgeist thing going on. Um, I mean, you know, 1977, 1982, it's just a sort of... I mean, people would obviously have been aware. I mean, everyone knew that Bing Crosby died shortly after making this, and so no one was going to be sort of, like, conned no. into thinking that, you know, they did it six months earlier. Um, so there is that, I suppose. But, yeah, I mean, generally, yeah, Let's Dance, I think, was the very last relevant thing that he did, is thinking of relevance. I think he just had an absolute the surest grasp of anybody on, you know, the sort of zeitgeist, the whole dialectical thing throughout the 70s, including Krautrock, you know, including the kind of shift from west to east, as it were, you know, and saying that that is where the new inspiration is going to come from. And, like, the massive favour he did Krautrock in terms of, like, conferring his blessing on it, because before mm. that it had just been taken as a joke, you know, and it was just like, you know, <laughs> we have these and making you listen and all that kind of bollocks, you know. Mm. Um, you know, and he was just brilliant in that respect, even when he was utterly fucked and drinking his own piss or whatever he knew <laughs> at some sort of deep level what was going on and the shifts that were occurring and that he could initiate and be part of but I just think by the 80s and I suppose as I was a kind of a principled observer of what was going on I saw him as a figure that was beginning to kind of lose that kind of grip really I mean, mm. fair enough you know I and mean, you know he had a long long run a long, long run at it. Um, but no, I do find it hard to... I mean, it is, it is a bit odd that, like, releasing something like this five years on, especially with something like Bowie, is all about kind of, you know, the changes and the dialectical shifts and all that kind of stuff, taking somebody mm. from a particular moment in 1977. I mean, it's odd that yes. the B-side of this is Fantastic Voyage, isn't it? Which is... So it's got... <laughs> you've got Brian Eno on ambient drone. On the same side, you've got Bing Crosby on sort of ambient croon on one side, and Brian, Brian Eno on ambient drone. Mm. But, but apparently that pissed off Bowie, didn't it? Uh, they, just, they just thought it was an arbitrary B-side. Who's buying this? Oh, well, I mean... <laughs> I, 
are Bowie fans buying well, this? Yeah, I think so. I think there were, a lot of them were very completist, weren't there? I mean, it had been available on a bootleg for, for a few years. If I was a serious Bowie fan in 82, this would have worried me, this song, in a sense, because mm. it is a hiatus year. He's mm. making plans, absolutely. He is already talking to Nile Rodgers and stuff, and he's kind of got the next stage of world domination on the go. We don't know that, though. And this is the only thing that comes out towards the late period of the year. What I would have been worried about as a Bowie fan was that, oh, my God, is he going to come back in 83, like working with freaking Gary Newman or something? Mm. He could have gone that way. Mm. He could have tried oh, to yeah. mirror... Oh, they didn't like, like each other. He, he didn't like Gary Newman. Yeah, no, but I mean, what I mean is he couldn't, not that particular person, but he could have tried, you know, Bowie is obviously aware of British pop, which is basically for the previous two years been totally aping what he's done late 70s style. And he could have tried to catch the tails of that. Mm. Um, But he doesn't. He he realises that the future probably for the 80s is going to be getting back to, in a sense, black American pop and Mm. black American Mm. funk music. And that's what sort of happens with Let's Dance. Um, Mm. I'd have been worried, though, in 82, with this as the sort of sole transmission, if you like, from the Bowie universe five years previously. Um, But yeah, I guess completest Bowie fans bought this. Bowie's got a lot of capital of worshipfulness at this point, Mm. you know, because, as you say, you know, the whole synth pop era and, you know, and how determined things are by that whole scene and you know in the sense that he's a great forefather to that the weirdness of both of them really stands out in the performance mm-hmm. the, but you know Bo is trying to make eye contact with Bing Bing's not able to do it mm. and that there's the both of them in their own way are so otherworldly I'm looking at this this video yeah. and thinking are they blue screened on that background <laughs> and they're not because we've seen the set yeah there is no connection between no them. Uh, and when the vocals start departing from each other, i.e. they're not singing the same thing, mm. they're both kind of singing individual songs, yes. um, almost to themselves. There's no warmth between them. There's no, there's nothing between them. It's a, it's yeah. a, it's, it's truly odd. Yeah. yeah, they're staring off in different directions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, the, the whole thing looks like your dad and grandpa are having a moment by the drinks cabinet on Christmas Day. <laughs> while you're on your scale electric and pretending not yeah. to notice the, the awkwardness of it. Mm. But isn't it odd how the fashions and what they wear... I mean, it's a Christmas thing. They're not going to be dressed up in anything outlandish and Bing Crosby never would. But no. just five years and yet it already looks so, so dated. I, I don't um, know. I mean, Bing's got a Slazinger cardigan on. He's, he's dating <laughs> a casual there. But Bing instantly <laughs> dates stuff. His face instantly dates yeah. it, it. You know, and, and it, you know, we're... I'm not saying we're in the 80s now, everyone must look like Zoo, but um, it's very, yeah, it's got that seminist tint to it. Mm. I mean, it's a sort Um, of inadvertent thing insofar as he does die shortly after this, and you can imagine him kind of having a sort of the roomy gaze into like death with a capital D, perhaps, you know, you can look at all of that. But but no, it's obviously the the male duet is always perhaps a kind of slightly awkward um, thing to to negotiate because, Mm. um, you know, you want to sort of project some sort of warmth and soulfulness, but, you know, you know, on a sort of, you know, get all Roger Daltrey and village people and all that, you know. Sort of. <laughs> but it's odd because they could have, they, they, yeah, they could have done something that was more kind of conventionally, mutually kind of warm and, you know, and sort of high, highly regarding one another. But uh, it is strange indeed. Is it any weirder than Bowie and Mick Jagger doing Dancing in the Street, though? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, but I mean, Bowie can do duets. I mean, under pressure, etc. He can yes. do it. And, and it's just, 
Yeah, without warmth, though, you can't. And, and I, I can't mm. think of a Christmas song that would have been suitable for a duet. Because obviously they're not, they're not going to do It's Cold Outside, are no. they? No. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I think um, Under it, Pressure it's... is the best of those duets, of those three that we yeah. mentioned, I think is mm. definitely the best. Absolutely, yeah. So two weeks later, Little Drummer Boy slash Peace on Earth dropped six places to number nine and left the top 40 the week after that, but not before selling over 445,000 copies in the UK, becoming David Bowie's ninth biggest selling single of all time over here and the second biggest seller out of all the singles he recorded in the 70s. Wow. Wow behind life on mars its release turned out to be the final straw in the now fractious relationship between bowie and rca and when his deal expired he immediately switched to emi and his first single with them let's dance spent three weeks at number one in april of 1983 and as we've discussed, less than a month after the recording of this song, Bing Crosby died of a heart attack on a golf course near Madrid, cementing Bowie's reputation as the death angel of singers in 1977, <laughs> as only the week before he performed Heroes on Mark Boland's Granada TV show, and Boland died a week later. Fucking hell, man. If David Bowie wants to turn up on your TV show to do Heroes, get the fuck away from him. Peace on earth. Let it be. Can it be? Oh, bless. I think I'm going to go off now and mull a can of top deck or two and sit by the fire and think about baby Jesus. So come and join us tomorrow for part three of Chart Music, episode 55. On behalf of David Stubbs and Neil Kulkarnay, my name's Al Needham. Stay pop crazed. <laughs> Chart Music. Great. Hello, I'm Justin. And I'm Lucy. And together we are the hosts of Plenty Questions. It's a very straightforward general knowledge quiz. We ask you 20 questions, one after the other, five second gap in between, and you shout the answers out. And then you tweet us to let us know how you've got on. See if you can get 20 out of 20. No one has so far, but that's because we haven't started doing it yet. Mm, But we will. Uh, And there's also going to be some fiendish brain teasers, so join us for Plenty Plenty Questions. Questions. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 